Yorkbound Publications. PD Papers Part 2 Slash Episode 2. Kareem Rahman Twitter, at clack underscore v932. Don't forget to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Episode 2. PD was two weeks into his new job and still had no idea what exactly it was that he did for James Gentry. PD had collected two weekly paychecks that cashed. That was a good thing. But not knowing exactly what his job was, was not satisfying to Petey. He didn't feel like he had a purpose at all. Petey's days were filled with riding around with Rocco making pickups, doing drop-offs, and watching Rocco have some very animated secret conversations with people. Since the first day Petey had seen Gentry at the club, he had not even seen him anymore. Petey was happy to have the job. The perks were excellent. Petey was making $25 per hour, really didn't do anything but ride around with Rocco all day, and he'd been supplied with a company car. A 2002 white Yukon Denali. For a person with no job experience whatsoever, a conviction on his record, juvenile and only 18 years old, Petey was doing pretty good for himself with this legal gig. Petey still went to work bothered every day. Because Petey couldn't figure out what he did all day every day, it was hard for him to tell if Gentry his boss, was a legal dude who did illegal things, or an illegal dude who had a couple of legal businesses. You know what I'm saying? Because Petey couldn't figure this out, he really had no idea how much money Gentry was making or how much he was worth. This bothered Petey. As a worker, Petey was the type to always wonder what the boss was making more than he paid attention to how much he was making. Petey Papers was not built to be a worker. Petey could have been making a million dollars a week and still wouldn't have been happy. His mind would have always wondered if I'm making a million dollars a week, then how much is the damn boss making? This type of thing really bothered Petey. Petey didn't report to Center City every day to go to work like he did the day he began working. The office that Petey was assigned to was located on the second floor of a dental office on 6th and Allegheny Avenue in North Philly. The place was named Gibro Incorporated. Gibro's offices had one secretary located in the lobby and two offices. One office belonged to Rocco, the other office belonged to a guy named Kenneth Wilson, who Petey had never seen in his two weeks of reporting here for work. Petey had no official office. He usually sat out in the lobby flirting with the secretary Tasha. Petey nicknamed her Big Booty Tasha. Him and Rocco both called her that. Never to her face though. At some point during the morning Rocco would usually come out of his office and then they would head out making their daily runs around the city. A few people came through Gibro to meet with Rocco, but most people who came to the offices were scheduling a meeting with Mr. Gentry. Petey always listened as Tasha told people which day Mr. Gentry would be able to meet with them. The nearest meeting date was usually weeks away. Petey had no idea what Gentry did, but it was clear that whatever it was, he stayed booked and busy. Petey could see that the office really had no official business. It was clearly a front. A front for what though? That was one of the things that really piqued Petey's curiosity. The company did have a bunch of drivers though. They'd come into the office, Tasha would hand them a piece of paper with an address written on it, and the drivers would be on their way. Petey was almost 100% that Gentry's business had something to do with drugs. He pressed Tasha about it, but everybody around here were tight-lipped about any and everything business-related. Everything was on a need-to-know basis around here. One thing that really made Petey curious about Gentry and Gibro Incorporated was that everyone who worked here was black. Except for Rocco of course. Petey couldn't help but wonder if this was by design or simply a coincidence. 
Most people who came in search of a future meeting with Mr. Gentry were white though. It was kind of odd to see these types of white people in this part of North Philly. The people that came looking for a meeting with Mr. Gentry looked like a fish out of water around here. There's white people in North Philly all the time. Hell there's white people who live in North Philly. But those type of white people looked like they belonged in the hood. The type that came through the offices didn't. Not everyone who came through the offices looked this way, but there were times when the office got visits from people who looked like they spent all of their time in country clubs. Real uppity looking people. What could these folks possibly want with Gentry? Petey pictured Gentry as a small-time pimp or mid-level drug dealer or some type of shit like that. The people coming through the office sometimes seemed to be way out of his league. I, you be palying man. Petey smiled as he flirted with Tasha who always flirted with Petey, but was a little extra receptive to the flirting on this day for some reason. I ain't playing. Look at your phone. Petey looked down at his phone as he felt it vibrating. A bunch of text messages from Tasha with images attached. Petey opened one. Tasha laughed at Petey as she watched his eyes widen as he looked at the pictures she'd sent him. I kid, we got a, a few runs to make. Let's hit it. Petey looked up to see Rocco walking past him. He never even stopped walking as he spoke. Petey sighed before he smiled at Tasha. I'll be back for you. We gonna continue this conversation. Tasha flirtatiously blew Petey a kiss and laughed. Petey turned around and broke out into a light jog so he could catch up to Rocco, who seemed to power walk everywhere he went. Petey laughed as he finally caught up to Rocco. The fuck you always be walking so fast for? Acting like it's a fire somewhere and shit. Rocco never broke stride as he responded. Serious people walk fast. Clowns walk slow. Petey shook his head. Man that shit is completely ass backward. Lames and fucking nerds walk fast. Thoroughbreds walk slow, because the world comes to them. They don't rush for the world. Every single day, Rocco and Petey went back and forth about this thing or that thing. The two went on for hours about little shit too. It was clearly looking like today's controversial topic was going to be the speed at which one walked. Rocco was 46 years old. Petey was barely 18. Rocco had been on this earth more than twice as long as Petey had which made having to work with Petey every day even more frustrating. Petey had played in the streets a little and spent five years in a juvenile prison. Petey flee like there wasn't much in this world that he had not already seen. Rocco was 46 years old, he knew better. Trying to explain this to Petey became a frustration task that Rocco repeated daily. Petey was not a knucklehead. Not by a long shot. Even Rocco had to admit that. Petey was actually very mature for his age, but, still an 18-year-old who thought he knew a lot more about life and the world than he actually did. Petey had seen and done some shit in his lifetime, but Rocco had seen and duo and some shit in his. Rocco started out in this life when he was just 10 years old. Rocco was old-school South Philly, born and raised. Rocco grew up in South Philly during the height of the Philly mob wars. Rocco had actually seen and been involved in some heavy shit during his lifetime. After doing petty robberies into his early teens, Rocco was called upon by the local mob to do his first piece of real crime business. Rocco grew up on Snyder Avenue. The same block notorious mob boss Angelo Bruno once lived on. The neighborhood was a tight-knit Italian-American community in the late 70s, throughout the 80s, and well into the 1990s. The neighborhood was a mostly peaceful one. 
nobody would dare come into the neighborhood starting any trouble. The mob had that kind of respect in South Philly. Things changed when someone decided it was a good idea to shoot the godfather in the back of the head with a shotgun. Things got very violent in South Philly after that. Rocco was too young to understand the ins and outs of why things happened back then, but like everyone else in the neighborhood, Rocco wanted revenge for the godfather's murder. Even as a young teenager. When some older guys in the neighborhood came up to Rocco and told him to throw a Molotov cocktail through a house's window on 10th Street, Rocco did so with no questions asked. Rocco carried out his mission, but he got popped for the crime 10 minutes later. Someone called the cops and reported that a kid had threw a cocktail into a house and set it ablaze. Rocco was unlucky enough to match the description. He was also unlucky enough to reek of gasoline when the cops caught up to him shortly after he'd committed the crime. No one was hurt in the fire, but the house, and the one next to it practically burned to the ground. Because of the proper crime, Rocco was sent away for 18 months. Rocco fought every day in juvie. He grew to love that shit. There was nothing in the world like the feel of beating someone's face in. Rocco came home from juvie as a 15-year-old, who was really nice with the hands, and who was also always looking for some trouble to get into. Rocco fought anyone, every chance he got. The older guys in the neighborhood took notice. They felt like the young, angry energy may be something they might be able to use to their advantage. Some of the older guys began taking Rocco on collections. Instead of working over a deadbeat who hadn't paid themselves, they sat back and watched young Rocco do it. Rocco was nice with those paws too. It got to a point that the older guys hoped whoever owed money couldn't pay, just so they could see Rocco go to work on them. Rocco was good in what he was doing, and easily would have been the type of person who would be quickly rising in the mob's ranks. The only problem with this was that Rocco wasn't actually putting in work for the mob. I take that back. Rocco was putting in work for the mob, but he really wasn't. You get what I'm saying? It's kind of confusing, but try to stay with me here. Let's say, I'm the boss, and I tell my general manager to do something for me. The lazy-ass general manager passes the job off to one of the managers. The manager believes he's doing something for the general manager, not for me. The boss. The manager passes the job off to a supervisor, who believes he's doing something for the manager, not the general manager. The supervisor passes the job off to a low-level employee who finally does the hard work. After the work is done the low-level employee gets nothing from the supervisor for a job well done. The supervisor gets a pat on the back for a job well done from the manager. The manager gets an attaboy from the general manager, who gets a financial bonus, and even more important, recognition from the boss for a job well done. See what I'm saying? Unless someone is crediting you for the work and word gets up the food chain, everyone else will be credited with the work you've done and never you. This is the position young Rocco was currently in. Anybody who mattered would never know that Rocco even existed, unless someone broke the normal routine of things and credited Rocco for the work he'd done, which would likely never have happened. Rocco was earning chump change for beating the hell out of people all day, every day. One day Rocco's handlers were tasked with a tough job. A job that guaranteed they were going to jail the minute they completed the job, if they even managed to complete the job. They figured it would be best to just hand off the job to Rocco. They could take credit for a job well done, and possibly move themselves up the ranks. A witness was planning to testify against one of the high-ranking members of the organization. Rocco's handler, Carmen, was tasked with making sure that the witness never made it to court. Killing witnesses was pretty easy. 
especially when everyone lived in the same neighborhood, and most people wouldn't dare say they saw anything even if they did. I mean, if you sit there and watch them get to one witness in the neighborhood, why the fuck would you think it could and happen to you? It made perfect sense. Anyway, this witness was different. He was set to testify against a mob captain. This was big. It wasn't every day local police made a sure-shot case against someone as high up as a captain. Police set a squad car in front of the witness's house 24 hours a day. Rocco had beat up plenty of people in his life. He even put some in the hospital for weeks. But he never killed anyone. Had never even thought about killing anyone. Even still, when Carmen put the six-shot revolver in his hands, Rocco knew that he was going to kill that witness. And he did. Rocco snuck into the back of the guy's house and put two bullets in his dome. And just as Carmen had suspected, Rocco got locked up for it. Rocco had been home from an 18-month juvie sentence for less than two months. He was already on his way back to prison. This time for 20 years, which was the sentence for murder back then. 15-year-old Rocco was certified on his 16th birthday and sent to adult prison to serve out his sentence. Once word spread in prison about where Rocco was from, he was quickly brought into the mob's circle of friends inside the prison. It was there, at that time, that Rocco's name began carrying some weight with it. Rocco was directly in contact with actual made men every day. When someone owed some money, they sent Rocco. When some heads needed to be cracked, they sent Rocco. When they were doing business with one of the gangs, the mob sent Rocco. As time went on, Rocco's attacks became more and more violent, and Rocco's reputation grew and grew. Only this time, the right people were witnessing Rocco's willingness for violence and his eternal loyalty. Rocco came home at from prison at the age of 36. He was a grown-ass man who'd spent most of his younger years on the inside. But Rocco came home with the respect of a made man. Rocco wasn't a made man though. He could never be a made man. His father was Italian, but his mother African. Rocco had been made fun of in his Italian neighborhood when he was younger because of this. Because he wasn't of 100% Italian descent, Rocco would never be a made man in the Italian mafia. Rocco was the next best thing though. A highly respected affiliate. Rocco came home to find that his old neighborhood was now ran by Carmen, who now went by the name Two Guns. Carmen had earned the nickname as he climbed the ranks. Carmen had personally committed many murders over the years and had ordered even more. Carmen had even come to power after a Gotti-style coup in which he knocked the sitting boss off and stole the crown. Carmen began snorting cocaine on the low. Most people had no idea about Carmen's little habit, but those that did knew that the drugs were contributing to Carmen's immense paranoia. Rocco Comic Home was not something that made Carmen happy. Yes, Carmen had committed multiple murders during his time, but the very first one he was credited with was the one that he had not actually done. And the only person that knew Carmen's little secret was back in the neighborhood. Rocco never even thought about telling anyone the truth. He'd heard the stories that Carmen was telling in the neighborhood while he was gone. That he'd done the killing and Rocco was just the dummy he brought along on the job who ended up taking the fall for the crime. Because the murder was done for a capo, it was that murder that got Carmen called up to the big leagues. Rocco's life was in danger almost from the moment he came home. It started off with Carmen just saying little disrespectful things to Rocco and hoping Rocco would react, but Rocco never did. Carmen couldn't just kill Rocco for no reason, no matter how bad he wanted to. Rocco was not made, but he was protected by the South Jersey mob for his loyalty when he was on the inside. Philly would lose a war against South Jersey. 
Killing Rocco for no reason and without permission would have been bad for Carmen. After not getting the response he'd hoped for from Rocco, Carmen decided to put Rocco in one of the crews that worked for him. Carmen even moved Rocco up to the crew boss position. This meant that Rocco, along with all of the other crew bosses were obligated to pay tribute to Carmen the boss. Every month, Carmen made sure to make Rocco's little ragtag crew's payments higher than everyone else. If Rocco couldn't make his monthly tribute, then that would be Carmen's green light. He could accuse Rocco of stealing or holding out. Rocco could see what was happening. Carmen was going to keep raising the tribute until it got to a price Rocco couldn't pay. Rocco had no idea why Carmen was doing this, but he knew what it was. Carmen had backed Rocco into a corner. It was basically kill or be killed at this point. Even though South Jersey was backing him, Rocco had enough sense to know that killing a made man was an automatic death sentence. But killing a boss was probably a death sentence to everyone he knew. Rocco would never get an okay to kill a boss. He was not a made man. Rocco still knew he needed to kill Carmen, if he wanted to live. And time was beginning to look like it was going to be a factor. What Carmen needed was a diversion. And it just so happens he had one. The Italian mafia had pull in the city. This was an undeniable fact. But Philly has always been one of those know-your-limits type of cities. Your territory was your territory, but stay the fuck out of mine. Philly's underworld is a hotbed of gangs of different nationalities, races, cultures, and even religions. The only reason there had never been an underworld civil war in the city was because people usually stayed in their respective lanes. And when someone looked like they were getting out of their lanes, a couple of people from the warring factions usually stopped a disagreement from becoming all-out war. Carmen had been breaking the rules for a few years now. He'd been attempting to muscle his way into black drug trade territory. There had been warnings and even a few killings, but Carmen had persisted. He knew very well the value in selling drugs in the black neighborhoods in South Philly. The only thing that stopped all-out war from breaking out was Carmen paying rent and staying in one small neighborhood in South Philly. That didn't mean people were happy about it, but it wasn't enough to start an all-out cultural war in the streets of Philadelphia over. One of the people who weren't happy about Italians in the black part of South Philly was a guy named James. Rocco knew this because Rocco and James had done time together back in the joint. Rocco did most of the drug business with the other races for the Italians on the inside and James Gentry was one of the many people Rocco had done business with. Gentry had already carved out a nice little piece of territory in South Philly among the many other illegal activities he was involved in. The neighborhood Carmen was moving in on wasn't exactly Gentry's territory, he just didn't like the idea that Carmen was beating him to it. Gentry was in the process of trying to eliminate everybody in South Philly who wasn't willing to get on his team. If you weren't Gentry's ally you were his enemy. There was no in-between or gray area with James Gentry. Rocco went to Gentry and did the strangest thing Gentry had ever seen someone in Rocco's position do. He asked for Gentry's help in knocking off a mob boss for undying loyalty in return. That nexty level of ownership that Gentry was trying to get to, Rocco was definitely someone who could help him get there. Rocco could be the key to opening up doors that were closed to most black people. Gentry agreed. He came up with a plan that would kill two birds with one stone. Gentry planned on setting in motion a series of events that would get two factions fighting and leave himself to pick up the pieces and territories that survived the battle. Gentry had Rocco hire two Italians who were really nobodies, to carry out a hit on a very popular member of the crew whose territory Carmen had been moving in on. Of course the crew reacted and carried out a hit on a member of Carmen's team. 
With the war officially on, Rocco was able to do what needed to be done. Rocco laid in wait in the bushes in front of Carmen's house at midnight waiting for Carmen to arrive home at his usual time. Rocco put two bullets in the back of Carmen's dome as he was unlocking the front door to his home. Nobody ever really knew who killed the mob boss, but retaliation was mandatory. Through Rocco, Gentry cut a deal with the New Jersey family to handle that piece of business for them. With the promise of future business ventures together, of course. The New Jersey family accepted the deal. Gentry did not even kill anyone. He simply purchased the small territory from the crew who formerly controlled it. Six-figure paydays speaks volumes in the hood. It's not an everyday opportunity to come by for most. With one of their fearless leaders dead, and the threat of a war with the Italians on the horizon, the small crew happily accepted a payment for the territory that wasn't even worth the price of a certain death. Gentry just waited. He waited for the next unsolved murder in South Philly to pop up in the newspaper. When it did, Gentry took credit for the murder and told Jersey that the business had been handled. The plan worked. They went for it. Rocco kept his promise of a loyalty pledge to Gentry. The two had moved up in the ranks of the underworld to go on to much bigger things. And Rocco remained the most loyal soldier in Gentry's crew, to this day. As Petey hopped into the passenger seat of Rocco's Lexus, he didn't have very high expectations for today. Every day was pretty much the same around here. When Rocco parked in front of a store on 13th Street things began to change for Petey. All right kid, you're up to bat. Petey looked at Rocco with a confused look on his face. What? You're up. Go in there and take care of that business. What business? You'll know when you get in there. Petey shook his head. As usual Rocco was being super vague about every little thing. Petey was out to prove a point though. His point? Whatever the job was, he was more than up to the task. Petey got out of the car and slammed the door before he headed into the store. Petey walked into the little corner store and looked around. He grabbed a soda out of the fridge and a $1 bag of Fritos before he got in line behind the other customers. Petey knew this store very well. This was one of the same stores he and Walter used to steal snacks from his youngsters growing up in Fairhill Projects. Petey smiled as memories of his childhood began playing in his head. His smile turned upside down when he thought about Walter. Walter who was currently serving time in prison because he killed his boss in order to save Petey's life. A money-making scheme Petey had come up with to make himself some extra money. A scheme he had put Walter right in the middle of. A scheme that Walter had not even known about, participated in, or made money off of. Petey broke out of his little daydream when he got to the front of the line. The old head behind the cash register looked to be about 50 years old. He nodded at Petey before he scanned his items, reached under the counter to grab a plastic bag, and placed Petey's items inside the bag. Petey knew right away that the man had obviously put something else inside the bag because the bag was much too big for just a bag of chips and a soda. He could have put that little bit of shit in a small brown paper bag. After saying thank you for your purchase after handing Petey the bag, Old Head leaned in close to Petey's ear. This from Billy Bates and Sharky. Montez ain't pay this week. Hearing the name Billy Bates gave Petey a reason to pause. The name Sharky and Montez meant absolutely nothing to Petey. But Billy Bates was a different story. There was only one Billy Bates around these parts and Petey definitely knew who he was. Instead of attempting to question the old head, Petey just nodded and headed out the store. Petey didn't know much about anything going on and he didn't want to let on that he might. Petey hopped into the passenger seat and nonchalantly passed the bag to Rocco.
IOG, let me get my soda and chips out of there. Rocco looked at Petey as he passed him his items. Did you look inside the bag? Petey shoved a handful of Fritos in his mouth before he spoke with a mouthful of food. Nope, ain't my business, but old head did say something about Montez ain't pay this week. Rocco nodded as he pulled an envelope out of the plastic bag and slowly counted the money inside without pulling it out of the envelope. Petey sat and watched everything. He showed little interest on his face as he did. When Rocco was satisfied that everything was correct he put the car in gear and pulled out. This had been a very good trip for Petey. He now possessed exactly what he'd been hoping to obtain for the last two weeks. A clue? Petey couldn't wait for this work day to be over so he could drive down to 10th Street and pay his old pal Billy Bates a visit. Dash. Pitbull watched the guard's desk intensely. He watched without trying to make it look too obvious that he was watching. He knew that he was only going to get one chance at this. If he missed his opportunity, chances were pretty good that there would not be another. Pitbull had put in way too much time and effort to allow this opportunity to escape him. This plan that Pitbull had set in motion had been a plan he had been working on for over eight months. That was a long time to be planning anything. But Pitbull was doing a 20-year bid. What the fuck else did he have to do with his time? Man if you don't believe just look up the case log. The fuck I need to lie for? Pitbull smirked as he looked at Zero skeptically. I'ma do just that. Pitbull had been locked up for a while and in that time he had heard some wild stories. But up until now he had never heard a story as wild as the one Zero had just told him. This was the day that Pitbull began putting the plan into place that he'd been working on for the last eight months. What Zero had just told Pitbull was about ways to get out of prison. One of those many ways Pitbull was very interested in. Zero told Pitbull about a guy that earned an early release from prison for something he'd done while back in jail in Philly. A guy had earned an early release by saving a correctional officer's life. Back in FDC a disgruntled inmate who'd just come back to his unit after a rough day in court, attacked a female correctional officer in the unit. The guy had come back from court pissed off and he had a really good reason to be pissed off. A judge had just slapped him with a 40-year prison sentence an hour prior. The guy was looking to lash out at someone, anyone, since he would never be able to get his hands around the neck of the judge who slapped him with a 40. The person he decided to lash out on was the correctional officer who worked his unit. He really lashed out too. He stabbed the woman multiple times with his homemade shank. When the woman fell to the ground the stabbing did not stop. He dove on top of her and continued the assault. The woman was stabbed over 30 times. This happened back in 1994-95. But that poor woman would still be getting stabbed by that inmate right now if two other inmates wouldn't have intervened. Sometimes a unit in a jail that is holding over 100 inmates is overlooked by one correctional officer. Two on a good day. That correctional officer's backup is always anywhere in the jail except the unit. If, by some strange chance that care of working the unit should happen to come under attack by one, or all of the more than 100 inmates on that unit, the response time for help to arrive is always at least two minutes out. A whole lot can happen to your ass in two minutes. 120 seconds doesn't seem like an especially long amount of time until something is happening to your ass. Anyway, the two good Samaritan inmates that intervened tackled the assailant and pinned him on the ground until backup arrived. Both of the good Samaritan inmates were looking at drama, very serious charges they were currently locked up for. These two good Samaritans were not co-defendants. Hell, they never even spoke to one another and had been living on the same unit for over 18 months. 
Both men facing very serious charges went before two different judges for sentencing after being convicted of their respective charges. Both of those judges requested a downward departure from their respective sentencing guidelines for the deed they had done back at the jail. Both men ended up getting half of the prison sentence they were supposed to get. Hell, both of them were looking at over 30 years in prison, but likey I said before, both of those jokers had drama. But the point still stands. Because they saved that woman's life on that day, those two walked away with 15 and 18-year prison sentences instead of 30 and 33-year sentences. Pitbull had already served half of his 20-year prison sentence. If he got himself some of this hero action, a downward departure would put him out the door at this point in his prison sentence. Yeah, Pitbull needed to get himself a piece of that. Now that Pitbull understood how he was going to get out of prison, the big question became, how could he get someone to attack a correctional officer? A big part of the reason that the incident that Pitbull had heard about back in Philly even took place was because that was a jail. Well, Pitbull wasn't in jail he was currently in prison. Big difference. In case you don't know, jail is a place you go to while you're still awaiting trial. You may get found innocent at court and you may get found guilty. Some people serve short sentences in jail also. Usually anything under two years. Prison is reserved for those who have already been convicted of a crime and are serving out their sentence. You can get a short stay in prison, but chances are you'll probably be serving more than a year if sent to prison. Sometimes people get sent back to prison to serve out short probation violations too. Three months, six months, nine months etc 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 it was being handed the 40-year sentence that likely pushed that guy over the edge that day. In prison, most people have accepted their sentence, and are just trying to live life. Some people attack corrections officers but that's usually not an everyday occurrence. In prison that is usually the result of something personal or either some type of gang initiation. Pitbull wasn't in a gang so using an initiation to get someone to attack a care of wasn't happening. But what else was there that could possibly make a person angry enough to try to kill a correctional officer? Love. Was the first thought that came to Pitbull's mind. People did some strange things in the name of love. But how could Pitbull possibly find a way to make love work in his favor in this situation? It took Pitbull a few weeks of wrecking his brain, but he finally came up with a solution. Correctional officers frequently have sex with inmates. This is an ugly truth. But that does not mean these are not facts. Even more, correctional officers frequently carry on relationships with inmates. Like real-life girlfriend-slash-boyfriend relationships. These relationships can carry serious consequences for both if ever discovered. These are infractions that would get an employee fired or even arrested and an inmate sent to the hole or even have more time added to their current sentence. But even with all of that on the table some people still take the risk. In most cases it's love for the correctional officers who's in a relationship with an inmate. But in the inmate's case it's usually just lust, special privileges, or even just having something different to do. No disrespect to anyone but, because things are usually this way, an inmate will go after a female correctional officer who he believes doesn't get a lot of attention from male suitors in the real world. She becomes an unwilling participant in his game. One of those jokers in prison tell her how beautiful she is all day, every day during her eight-hour shift, and after a few weeks or months she's usually like silly putty in his hands. Getting a correctional officer to fall for your game, and get her to risk losing her job for you is not something that's going to happen in a day or two. This type of shit takes weeks or even months. Hell, maybe even years. This is definitely the long con. No doubt about it. 
But what the fuck else does a motherfucker who's doing a 30-year prison sentence have to do all day? The first thing Pitbull needed to do was figure out exactly which female correctional officers may be receptive to an inmate's game. After he figured that out, he was going to need to figure out which one of these inmates had been successful in laying down their game. Then he might be able to move in and hope to disrupt some shit. Hopefully the disruption would cause the inmate to take the most drastic action imaginable. Then he had to hope like hell that, that most drastic action imaginable was not one against him. The whole thing had a slim to none chance of succeeding. The best way to figure out who may be in love with one of these correctional officers was to go directly to the source. Even finding the source was difficult because someone fucking a care of was usually something people tried to keep to themselves. It's not even a thing that you could simply recognize in public either. People in relationships were very guarded about public contact or even publicly speaking to one another. A way you might get a sense of something going on was if a care of lingered near an inmate's cell a little longer than usual. But even that wasn't 100%. Some COs, and most inmates were just naturally chatty. Another way you may be able to tell was an inmate frequently getting called to go to some out of the normal place. Like the medical building. This was likely where the secret rendezvous were taking place. Pitbull watched for all of the signs. Nobody on the unit got called to more odd places than Marcus Blakeney. Blakeney was called to go somewhere off of the unit practically every single day. Blakeney's call-outs usually happened when Ms. Santera was working. That was Monday to Fridays from 4 p.m. to 12 a.m. Blakeney was a real somebody out there in the world. He was currently serving a seven-year prison sentence for running a car chopping ring, but word around the unit was that Blakeney dipped and dabbed in drug dealing and bank robbery also. Whatever it was Blakeney had going out on the streets was still going on even though he was in prison. The fact that Blakeney had money and peoples who were willing to move out for him still out on the streets meant that there was a 99% chance that Blakeney had something coming in. By something coming in, I mean he was getting drugs into the prison somehow for him to sell and make money from. Pitbull's best guess was that this part is where Miss Santera came in at. Miss Santera wasn't an ugly chick, but there was a pretty good chance that she was an insecure one. Miss Santera was likely the target of many prison scammers. An older Hispanic woman who may have been thinking that her better days were behind her, suddenly getting hit on by physically fit young men in their 20s and 30s. Miss Santera was about 57 years old and as single as single could be. When she went home after work the most action Miss Santera got was watching Game of Thrones and Sex in the City. Cougar shit. For a dude like Blackney, a woman like Miss Santera wasn't one of those things you come across every day. She was more than willing to bring his drugs in for him in exchange for some sex from the physically fit, smooth-talking playboy Marcus Blakeney. If Pitbull's guess was right, losing Miss Santera was definitely something that Marcus Blakeney would go all out for. Just the thought of losing his drug mule and personal stress releaser was something that would probably be enough to drive Blakeney crazy and cause him to lash out. The only question left was who would ultimately catch Blakeney's wrath when he decided to lash out. Pitbull or Miss Santera? Pitbull knew that even thinking about going to Blakeney and asking him if Miss Santera was his babe would have been drawn. Pitbull had been at this prison for 10 years and Blakeney had been here for and a half. In all of that time the two had never even acknowledged one another. It wasn't a beef or anything. It was simply the two ran in two very different circles. Pitbull only hung out with fellow scammers. Blakeney was as close to a shot collar without a gang that you were going to find around here. Blakeney was basically the connect. Everybody fucked with Blakeney. 
Pitbull decided that the best person to get confirmation from was Blakeney's cellmate, white boy Mike. If anybody knew about Blakeney's going-ons it would likely be his cellie. Pitbull just needed to be sure that the topic came up in a casual conversation and white boy Mike wouldn't catch on to what type of information Pitbull was attempting to extract from him. If that happened white boy Mike would likely run back and tell Blakeney. If that happened everything would be fucked up. Mike had been at this prison as long as Pitbull had. The two were casual. Not friends, but they always spoke and sometimes even conversated about this and that. Mike ran the store on the unit. Pitbull had done a lot of grimy shit here in prison, but even Pitbull had enough sense to pay the store man when he owed him. Being on bad terms with the store man was a bad way to do time at any prison. You never know when you might need to borrow something for a week or so until your money hit your books, and whatever it was that you needed there was a 99% chance the store man had it, or could get it. Pitbull was fortunate enough to have maintained good credit with the store man over the years. Pitbull went to Mike and Blakeney's cell to hit Mike up for a couple of soups, a summer sausage, and some cheese curls until next week as a reason to spark up a conversation with him. Pitbull had been inside Mike and Blakeney's cell a few times over the years. This time he paid close attention to everything in this cell. He was looking for just a small sign of anything that showed him that his theory that Blakeney and Miss and Tara being an item might be true. There were no pictures of the two hanging on the walls or sitting on the desk. Duh. Pitbull didn't see signs of any love letters or anything lying around. But what Pitbull did see inside the trash can was something that should not have been in there. An empty hamburger wrap from McDonald's. There was only one way an inmate was eating Mickey D's up in this bitch. Someone had brought it in for him. Pitbull got his items from Mike and made a little small talk about the football games coming up on Sunday. As he was leaving out the door he purposely looked in the trash can so Mike could see and turned and looked at Mike. I see you eating good up in this bitch. Pitbull said it so nonchalantly that Mike misunderstood the search for info as a compliment. He made the mistake of trying to play humble secondary big shot. No, that's my Sally. Got one of those care of bitches in check. Major check. That bitch do anything for OG you know how Sally's roll though. We look out for each other. But you know, if I was him I'd play it a different way. I'd just use the chick for what it's worth. My Sally. I think he's falling in love with this bitch. Pitbull nodded and attempted his best impressed act. Sheesh. I'm trying to get like y'all. I'm downstairs living like a savage. Pitbull totally acted like he wasn't interested in the last part of Mike's statement at all. Mike was none the wiser to the fact that he just dry snitched either. Mike and Pitbull both laughed before Pitbull continued. Yeah, but I'ma get this stuff back to you on Tuesday night? Mike nodded before he shook Pitbull's hand. Pitbull left the cell and walked down the hall managing to keep a straight face the whole time. He hit the stairs and walked down the unit to his cell, still managing to keep a straight face. When he got to his cell he put his towel up on the window. Pitbull laid in his bed and finally cracked a huge smile. He had just found his ticket out of this bitch.